Now let's go to the scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 to 40. It's quite a bit of reading, so let's give our attentive uh, listening to the living word of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Whenever my friends come to visit Atlanta, uh, I do encourage them to do one touristy thing, um, and that is to visit uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, National uh, Historical Park. And there's so much history there. Um, there's a lot you can see and read about uh, as you move from the, the church to his birth home to the King Center. Um, and what you would also find is not just stories about him, uh, of, of Dr. King, but also other Uh, civil rights um, champions uh, during that time. Now, if my friend were to ask me, how much time will it take to really take in everything, um, 
I would say it, should, it would take you at least a few hours, you know, two to three hours to really take in all of that, maybe even longer if you were to pause and have more reflective uh, moments here and there. Um, and that way you'll really have a full immersive um, experience. But uh, if my friend were to tell me, I can only spare one hour, one hour there or less, uh, then I'll say, okay, that would still be a valuable time, uh, but you will simply be strolling through the park. Um, and it will definitely therefore be worth revisiting uh, in the future. Now I share that to tell you, we're, what we're about to do with the rest of chapter 11 is we're going to stroll through the Hall of Faith. Uh, we're not going to have this deep, uh, reflective, immersive experience that tells you everything about each of these names, but um, we're going to look at them very briefly and concisely, and that's because the author himself is doing that. The author himself is guiding us uh, through the Old Testament as if it can be a quick tour, at least uh, in this context. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 11, um, like we're taking a, a stroll through uh, parts of the Old Testament. And there's going to be a lot to chew on and reflect on. And I do encourage you uh, later on to revisit these passages. And, you know, when you do go to the Old Testament reading during your reading, Bible reading schedule, um, think of this passage. Think of the mentions of these names that are not so familiar to you, but you remember hearing about in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin with Abraham again, because he is the father figure of the faith, and he kind of serves as this, this big umbrella uh, that encompasses all the faithful people that come after him, all the offspring of Abraham, uh, who are offspring of faith, according to Paul. And we're going to see uh, the two big elements uh, here, uh, one being uh, what faith produced by God's gracious promise looks like, and um, what living by that faith and dying by that faith looks like. Okay, so on the one hand, how the faith comes by God's gracious promise. And on the other hand, secondly, what living by that faith actually looks like uh, in the here and now. That's the two big ideas uh, that we're going to be holding on to for today. So let's first consider the, the, the first point of what faith produced by God's promise looks like. What does that look like? Well, first take a look at verses 17 to 19 again. Here you see that Abraham was tested to offer up Isaac. Uh, now, many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac, so I won't retell the whole story. But see here where it says that he offered up Isaac in the past tense, in the complete sense. Uh, that's noteworthy, considering that in the end, Abraham did not offer up Isaac. Uh, he didn't have to. God had provided a substitute, and yet here it says he offered up uh, as if it was counted to him as full obedience. And that goes to show you the important point of the story is not so much what Abraham did uh, as it is just what was in his heart. What was in Abraham's heart? His heart was willing to offer to God anything and everything, knowing God has the right to give, God has the right to take away. Now imagine the anguish, however, that Abraham would have experienced when God asked Abraham to offer up his beloved son, um, Isaac. Uh, this would have been the darkest day of his life, I believe. Uh, this is the darkest of any valley of the shadow of death that Abraham had to walk through. Now the question 
for those of faith, uh, the offspring of Abraham. Uh, when we find ourselves in such a situation, the question is always this, what do we say of God? Uh, in that moment, what do we say of God? Well, it says here in verse 19, Abraham considered that God was able. God was able. Able to do what? To raise him from the dead. You see, Abraham's faith in God was total and it was radical. Uh, but it, it wasn't irrational. Uh, it wasn't blind. See, it says here he considered. He considered who God is and what he is able to do. He reasoned about God. God is able to raise Isaac from the dead, especially given God's promise. God's promise to bring up a multitude of nations through Isaac. And that can't make sense if Isaac remains dead. And so in Abraham's reasoning, uh, he knew that if God were to keep his promise and God cannot lie, then Isaac must either be resurrected or not be put to death. Abraham knew God. He considered these things of God. Not how to get out of a situation, but who is this God who is with me, who has given me his promises? And it is this faith uh, in God that led Abraham to lunge straight into uh, the darkest valley of the shadow of death. You know, Joni, our uh, one-year-old, uh, she'll be two in a couple of months. She's scared of the dark. Uh, if you want to get her out of a room, just turn the lights out, and, and she'll come right out of there. Well, there is one exception to that, and that is when, you know, when we head out uh, of our home from the living room floor to the garage, uh, and the staircase there, it's usually very dark, and we don't always turn the lights on because we're on our way out. Um, Joni, uh, she would hesitate to go down those stairs if it was just dark, right? Because she's afraid of the dark. Um, but see, when, when I'm down there, when I'm down there, the lights are off, it's still dark, and I call out to her, and I say, Hey, Joni, it's time to go. Come to Appa. Come to Appa. She would from the top of the stairs, start sliding down, sliding down the stairs like at the speed of light, uh, without any hesitation, without any fear, just because uh, she's heard my voice. Abraham's lunging into the dark, uh, the darkest, lowest pit of his life, uh, wasn't irrational, it was relational. It was him trusting in his father's voice calling him. Uh, and, and we see when he did that in the story in Genesis, God did not ultimately require Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It was a test of his faith. And God provided him a, a ram, a substitute to be offered up as a burnt offering. Instead, pointing to uh, the, the act of love that God would show Abraham and his offspring by offering up literally his son, his son who offered himself up willingly on the cross uh, to save sinners and reconcile sinners to God. And when we see the legacy of, of Abraham's faith passed on uh, to Abraham's children, we, we see a similar pattern. People holding on to who God is, what he has promised, and that producing this radical faith that even leads people into the dark. 
to, to realize that God is with them even in the dark and that they are not alone and that they are not abandoned. God said this covenant with Abraham is between him and his children, him and his children. And so what he did was he, he not only had Abraham circumcised, but he also asked Abraham to circumcise his male infant children uh, because now Abraham has a responsibility to pass the promise, pass the covenant down to his children and his children to their children. And this is why we uh, consider our children in the same light as God's covenant people to be raised in the faith, set apart from the world by a covenant sign. Now we see this in uh, playing out starting from verse 20. It says, Isaac invoked future blessings on his children, on his children, and Jacob, by faith, uh, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. So, by faith, these fathers blessed their children, and their children blessed their children. This covenantal pattern continues. The blessing God gives me is not just for me. Uh, I must pass it down to the next generation. Uh, this has always been the understanding of God's people from all the way from the Old Testament to the New. Uh, even where Peter says this promise is for you still and for your children. Deuteronomy 6-7 tells us, And these words that I command you shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. He doesn't say that parents uh, can somehow uh, put it on the children's hearts. That's your responsibility. It shall be on your heart. But you have the responsibility to teach them diligently to your children until God places it on your children's hearts as well. But until then, until that point, you are still to consider them as God's covenant people who are subjects of God's word. And as we see in the Great Commission, even in the New Testament, those who are Christ's disciples are to be marked, marked with the covenant sign in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in our church, and, and especially in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, we consider our children to be Christ's disciples. That's why we baptize our infants. We place the covenant sign without the shedding of blood, the circumcision of Christ on our children, because we believe that our children are disciples, are ought to be disciples of Christ, and we will raise them in such a way, and we separate them from the world, we mark them as God's people, and, and we tell them. We should be telling them every day, every week, uh, you are God's people. You are Christ's disciple. Uh, you must hold on to this promise, and you must live by faith. You must live by faith. The promise is for us and our children. Then there's the mention of Joseph in verse 22, who, who made a future prediction about the exodus of the Israelites. He gave them directions about his bones, meaning to take his bones with them uh, when they make it out of Egypt. And, and what this shows us is Joseph's faith uh, that his future offspring will indeed experience the exodus uh, according to God's promise to Abraham it is so sure and so certain to be true. Uh, he, he doesn't simply say, hey, take my word for it. He says, take my bones with you when this happens. He's not just promising this in life. He's promising this in death, too, uh, that God's going to keep his promise. And you can really bank on that. You can really trust in God's promise. And so you see the legacy of faith continuing through 
uh, Joseph's life as well. And it makes me wonder, uh, what will be you know, my last words to my children that will communicate my faith in God's promise to them? Uh, will they be encouraged to continue to live in the faith uh, in God's promises uh, when they think of my last words, uh, the legacy that I leave with my children? I hope that we would all consider that, you know, how we can all live now according to God's promises, but also how are we going to pass that on to the next generation so that they, when they think of us, will include us in this hall of faith, uh, that comes from one generation to the next. Because that is God's design. It is God's will. Uh, and it's such a great blessing uh, that we can receive from God. So this is the structure of what faith produced by God's promise can look like. Leads us into radical places uh, because we trust in God's presence and his promise. And it also leads us to pass that on to the next generation uh, because God is a covenantal God who blesses not only you as an individual, but you and your household, you and your offspring as well. Now, uh, the rest of the passage gets now in, a bit more in, into what living by this faith looks like, both in life and in death. So let's take a look at that. Uh, the theologian Michael Kruger has a helpful summary. He divides this section into four categories of living and dying by faith. Let me briefly go through each of them. The first category is this. Faith refuses the allurements and values of the world. And we see this from verses 23 to 27. If you look at verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, what's really noteworthy here is that preserving the child meant they don't preserve necessarily themselves. Uh, they were, in a way, sacrificial of their own preservation because they're going against the king's edict by preserving the life of Moses, their son. Now, this is only possible if they were, as it says here, not afraid of the king. Not afraid of king. Now, of course, how can you not be afraid of king who, who can take your life away, who can, who can put you to death uh, just like that? Well, they feared God more. They were more fearful of God than they were of this human king. And of course, this is consistent with what we've seen in Abraham's life, the willingness to even sacrifice Isaac. There is a greater fear of God than the fear of man. Uh, there's a greater fear and awareness, if you will, uh, of God, more than the fear and awareness of man. And this theme of, of choosing God uh, over me and my preservation and my comfort and my preferences, choosing God over all those things is what we see in Moses, from, even from Moses' parents' time. But we see in Moses' life as well from verses 24 to 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses was a man who could have enjoyed literally every uh, pleasure there is in the world. Uh, and yet he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. 
And specifically, he says here that by faith, he considered pleasures of sins to be fleeting. Fleeting. And this is key. Uh, in the exercise of Christian faith, uh, one of those things that, that we have to constantly weigh and consider uh, is what is truly lasting and what is not. You know, what is eternal and what is fleeting? Because it's when we consider these things that we're reminded of the very important fact that, that you and I are lasting beings, not a fleeting one. Um, and and that, therefore, we have to, in a way, elevate beyond the things that are just immediately in front of us that are here now and then gone a few minutes later. Uh, here now, but gone as, as everything else decays. G.K. Chesterton, who authored The Everlasting Man, wrote this. A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Uh, the world, in a sense, is always going with the stream of chasing after fleeting pleasures. Things that are fleeting, things that are bound to decay, things that are, you're bound to, to lose your grip on. But a living thing, he says, can go against that stream and pursue, therefore, what? Something lasting, something eternal, and therefore be counted as an everlasting man. Are you going against the stream? Are you truly living as an immortal being that you are? Uh, and you can. You can live that way. You can swim, swim against that stream by faith, uh, as Moses did. So I hope that the next time you face spiritual battles against these temptations to, to pursue the fleeting momentary uh, pleasures, that you would not so much uh, look at the temptation uh, that's uh, before you, but more so look at the everlasting value of your own soul. Uh, created in the glorious image of God. That's what you are. And therefore, you are immortal. You're everlasting. And therefore, you should pursue the joys and the pleasures that are also everlasting. And that's what we find in God. And that was the faith of Moses. As it says in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Uh, once again, it's so astounding here to see Moses had considered Christ. Moses had faith in Christ. Moses, in, in all sense of the word, was a Christian. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And it also says in verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Seeing him who is invisible. Uh, this is another thing that faith enables you to do. I remember seeing and greeting the promised land from afar, as our fathers of the faith did. Uh, we also see God who is invisible, who is unseen. And yet, the Christian faith, therefore, is not irrational or void of content, but filled with the revelation of God from his word, from his promises, informing us of what our faith is in, what our faith is in, what the substance of that faith is. And this is how we live elevated, uh, live pursuing uh, not, the, not the pleasures of the world, but the pleasures of God, of knowing him, of drawing near him, and being made, made right with him. 
forever. Secondly, uh, Kruger mentions how faith in this section uh, manifests itself in trusting God even when things don't make sense. Faith believes when things don't make sense. Now, earlier I said faith is not irrational or blind, but there are times uh, when what's required of you and what's required of me just doesn't make sense. How do we reconcile those two statements? If it's, if it's not irrational, shouldn't it make sense? And that's not necessarily the, the case. I mean, uh, it's not uh, irrational to believe that quantum mechanics and astrophysics are all real. But that doesn't mean it makes sense to me. It actually wouldn't make any sense to me if you try to explain it to me. There are things that are rational to hold to, and yet uh, it's beyond our finite minds to comprehend. And if that's true, even among human relationships from one person to the next, how, tr- how much truer would this be between us and God, that there are things of God that are not irrational to hold to, and yet we will not fully understand? A few examples are given to us here. From verses 28 to 31, uh, the Israelites sprinkling the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, um, you know, trusting that that would somehow keep them from the destroyer. And it does. And when they're led out, they're led out to the Red Sea, a dead end, as if somehow they can be saved from, from that when they have nowhere else to go. And they are saved. And when they reach the walls of Jericho, they simply march around it rather than attacking it as if somehow just marching around it would bring the walls down. And it does. And Rahab, who hid the Israelite spies uh, when they were spying on the land, uh, helped them, protected them, as if Israel, the weaker, smaller nation, would win. And they do. See, none of these things made practical sense. These were things that defied common sense, uh, practical sense, self, self-preserving sense. And yet it was by faith that God's people uh, achieved these things and saw God working in mighty, miraculous uh, ways. And this does relate to what we talked about last week, about how faith, therefore, takes risks. Living by faith uh, oftentimes looks like taking risks. There's no such thing as risk-free Christianity. Uh, Here's the thing. If you could make sense of everything about God and what He's doing, would God still be God? I would say, I would propose to you, he wouldn't be God. Uh, That would just be a figment of your own imagination, whoever that being is that you can make sense of completely, uh, that fits neatly into your finite human mind. That isn't God. That is a figment of your own imagination. If God exists, the Almighty who transcends everything, who created everything, who who preceded all matter, time, and space, and by his incredible power and wisdom created all things in an orderly way, uh, he must be, at some point, he must be mysterious to us, mysterious and unknown. Living by faith, therefore, uh, can and should include things that don't make complete sense to our finite minds. Um, I think it's similar to how, you know, in... In Infinity War, when, when Doctor Strange, you know, gives up the time stone uh, while sparing Iron Man, and, and what does Strange say to him uh, just before he, he fades into nothingness? This is the only way. And 
Tony Stark has absolutely no idea what he's talking about then. Not until the end game. Right? Not, only, not, not until they, they see the full story unravel. Uh, that's when he realizes what, what Strange meant. Um, that was the only way to defeat Thanos and save the world. The meaning of faith in, in, in sort of this Marvel terms is seeing the end game, uh, not dwelling in the, the infinity war, but seeing the end game. And despite how strange it might be, um, holding fast uh, to the promise. It's believing this, what Paul says in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's holding on to that by faith. Uh, third, faith does lead to mighty deeds and accomplishments. That's another category uh, that we see here. That's what uh, some of these names imply, the names like Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, David. Now, what you also notice as you, again, not only stroll through this, but go back and be reflective and immersive when you read the stories of these people in the Old Testament, what you will also find is that these are men who were deeply, deeply flawed. Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Don't get me started on Jephthah. Um, and, and of course, David. These were deeply flawed individuals. And yet, when they exercised faith, amazing things were done. Okay, and the question is, how and why? How does this work? This tells us faith is not some magical power that Christians get to wield as they wish uh, if they happen to really keep their life pristine and pure and sinless before God. This proves to us that the power given by God to do what he wills can come to anyone, anyone, with any measure of faith. That's what this shows us. You want to live powerfully, uh, and, and do something amazing for, for God, what's required of you is faith in God to accomplish what God has promised to accomplish and to align your purpose with his purpose, not for you to live uh, this, this amazing, uh, blameless life so that you can wield God's power to do what you want to do. And that's what you see in the, in the lives of these, these men, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, and of course, David, God was working out his purpose for Israel through these people, however flawed they may be, if their faith was placed in God and his promises. My professor uh, who taught missions back in seminary had this great thing he said now and then that I still keep in mind. He said, God loves to pour out his spirit with power on those who will dare to align radically their purposes with his. Let me read that again. God loves to pour out his spirit with power on those who will dare to align radically their purposes with his. Uh, if you want to be spirit-filled and, and you want to see God's power working through you in amazing ways, all you have to do is align your purpose with God's purpose. Seek the kingdom of God uh, and invite the Holy Spirit to fill you and use you for that kingdom purpose and if that heart motive is genuine and you're truly living for the glory of God and the purposes of God, God will manifest his power in amazing and, and at times miraculous uh, ways. Despite how flawed you may be as an individual, if your faith is in him and you're trusting God to fulfill his promises, he will work 
in you, he will work through you. Fourth, faith is also this willingness to endure persecution and suffering. That's what we see from verses 35 to 38. Sometimes aligning our purpose with God's means we enter into persecution and suffering for God's name. And, and, and here's what, where the duality comes in. That's so fascinating. In verse 34, in verse 34, it says, some did escape the edge of the sword. In verse 37, however, it says, some were killed by the sword. Some escaped, some did not. They all live by faith. What does this tell us? This tells us that having faith then is not, not the determining factor of whether you will suffer in this life or not. Having faith is not the factor. Because here we have, we have uh, two lists of people. Uh, one group of people who had faith and escaped the edge of the sword, and another group of people who had faith and died under the sword, under persecution. What is the factor then? that determines whether we will suffer or not, whether you and I may perhaps will suffer persecution, die under the sword or not. Having faith is not the factor. What is? God is. God is the factor. His authoring of your life, his control over every detail of your life, he is the factor. Does your faith in God your trust in who he is and all of his promises lead you to rest in this truth? That your life is not in your control but God's. That you're not the author of your life but God is. And living by faith means we chase after this reality. Uh, not the illusion where I'm in control. Not the illusion where I get to author everything in my life and things must go according to my plan. Faith allows you to rest in the fact. In this life, you may find moments of happiness, but in this life you may also find great moments of suffering, tribulation. Whether I live a long life or short life, whether I will escape torture for my faith or be tortured for my faith, whether I will see the fruit of all my works, my ministry in this lifetime or not, none of these things are up to me. None of these things are up to me. It's up to God. And faith, faith enables us to not worry in that, but rest uh, in that truth. We really have to um, move out of this American gospel that says, uh, if I just have faith, if I am just faithful to God, the quality of my life will only improve. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That is an American consumeristic, materialistic gospel. That is not living by faith. Whoever says that, that by faith you can live your best life now, you should point them to Hebrews 11, verses 35 to 38. Have you, have you read about these saints who live by faith, faith stronger than, than yours or mine, who are tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life? What does that mean? The best life isn't here. It's when we rise with, with God to the eternal, eternal country. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, 
went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. How does this tell me that if I just have faith, I can just live my best life now? That is anti-biblical. That's anti-gospel. It tells me instead what Jesus had taught me. Suffering will be very much a part of my life here on earth to remind me this is not my home. Jesus promised this much. In this world, you will have tribulation. And we should expect that to be true. If in this life we're striving for a life that's void of suffering, we're striving not for a reality, but for an illusion. Christians, by faith, see, see through the illusion, see through the illusion of materialism and comfort and fleeting pleasures, and we see that there is a better home awaiting us. And it helps us to confront the reality of what sin has done to this world, how broken, damaged this world is because of sin. As Scotty Smith put it, to suffer now then is to be human. To suffer is to be human. Um, to, to avoid suffering is to avoid being a real human being in the real world. And to suffer well is to be a Christian, is to belong to Jesus because we're longing for a better country where he will take away and remove every suffering. And so until then, we strive to live for his glory, for his purposes, sharing his good news with those of our neighbors who are also suffering and also in need of hope, in need of the good news. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That is our hope. That we're still part of this finishing race. It is not yet done. And we're seeing the promised land from afar, greeting it from afar, just as Abraham did, just as Isaac, Jacob, just as Moses and Joshua and David did. Until then, we do not receive fully, fully what is promised. We hold on to it by faith. So it says, in conclusion, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So just as they, these saints did not receive what was promised in this life, but looked forward to it, we can and we will do that by faith as well, and carry on this legacy of living by faith and dying by faith, longing for the promised land as God's eternal people. Are you living by this faith? Are you also dying by this faith? Uh, this faith is, is not something that we conjure up on our own. It's something that only comes by the grace of God as we listen to his promises, listen to his words. It's a gift of his grace. So I want to encourage you to immerse yourself in the grace of God, in the good news of Jesus Christ who came to not only suffer with us, but suffer for us and to resurrect and to show us this is the way to the better country. This is the way home, Christians. This is the way to your heavenly Father. He has made a way for us, Christ, and our faith, if our faith is in Him, only in Him, we will make it home as well. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we pray that you will Help us by the power of your Spirit 
to live by this faith in your son, to live for his grace, to live for the promise of eternal life and not for the fleeting pleasures of this world, not for the things that will ultimately decay, not for things that we cannot preserve. Lord, uh, help us by faith to look forward to the coming kingdom, the new city that you will bring down from heaven. And as we do so, help us to live on the earth, no matter what we suffer, no matter where you lead us, and no matter how you've authored our lives, to keep our faith firmly in you and to make your promises known to others, to, to pass on your promise to our children and their children's children so that, Lord, we will not be driven by uh, materialism, consumerism, thing, all the things that lead us to be more anxious, lead us to be more controlling, more, more fearful of our future. Help us to live in the security of knowing that you have prepared a home for us and help us to continue this legacy of faith. Help us to continue to see and greet the promised land from afar, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.